0: Special collections provides that extra stuff uh, when we talk about people doing research for dissertations and books and such. And it, I don't—I—I I couldn't even give a percentage, but there's so much of the archival world which is just unexplored at this point. And it's—and as far as well, it's all available digital. No, it's not.
1: in columbus ohio this is professor elizabeth ranker from the english department at the ohio state university and i have the great pleasure of talking with jeff smith my colleague from ohio state he is professor emeritus of the ohio state university libraries and the former head of the rare books and manuscripts library and um Noting that the date is uh, January 22nd, 2021. One of the things I'd like to mention in introducing Jeff and starting our interview is that uh, almost exactly 20 years ago, Jeff and I started working together on uh, Sarah Piot and collecting materials related to her life and career. So I thought for starters, uh, Jeff, I would just ask you to recall um, how did you first come to hear about Therapia? Uh
0: From you, uh, when, you start, when your interest started in it. And that uh, one of the truisms of collection development in, in all collections, you build upon strengths because you, want, you, you just can't collect everything. So you wanna build upon those particular materials that traditionally have been a strength. Uh, in our case, we had the Charvat, Charvat American Fiction Collection which then was later became the Shabbat American Literature Collection, which is particularly strong in the 19th century. So when you begin looking at those terms, say, well, we begin with this broad old umbrella of American literature. Then we get into the 19th century, which is the greater strength of that collection. It, uh, it is one of the strongest in the country of fiction. Then we realized that within our general collections, we had somehow, somewhere, this was before my time, received an outstanding collection of women poets from the 19th century. That was part of the impetus for changing the name of the Charbot collection from fiction to literature. And Sarah Piat was a 19th century American woman poet. An uh, analogous situation I could give you is the uh, Hawthorne collection at Ohio State, which is different in the sense that. Uh, has multiple editions of, of, of uh, Scar- uh, Scarlet Letter or Blight, Blightdale Romance or, or the others. And it was there for, it was established during the uh, uh, publishing of the uh, in compilation of the Nathaniel Hawthorne Centenary Edition under the auspices of the Center for Editions of American Authors uh, of the Modern Language Association. And uh, it was many universities received different authors. Uh, Indiana had William Dean Howells. uh, Clark University had James uh, Fenimore Cooper. uh, Stephen Crane was at Virginia. And I always thought Ohio State was just very fortunate to get Nathaniel Hawthorne, one of the real giants. Uh, Well, in your field, Melville was at the Newberry. Uh, Well, and working through Northwestern. And in doing that, they were doing textual editions. So they had to get as many copies as they could because of the traditions or the, the way of printing in those days that there were many changes made from edition edition and some of them could be quite significant. Uh, so we had that collection. And then, so you start with American literature and here in the author. So you got to concentrate on that author. So Sarah Piat fell into that sort of model. We've got a lot of women's 19th century American poetry and why can't we just start specializing in that? Uh, ultimately, so I'll just take one step forward, which is a so, somewhat analogous yet, we end up getting manuscript collections of contemporary writers valued into papers. We won't, I mean, that will happen with Sarah. It already is happening with Serapia. So that's taking that next step to get the papers, which makes it in a strange way even richer or will be richer than the Hawthorne collection. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that you just had a great depth of materials there. Also as a part of the mission statement, I'm not sure if it's actually written as a mission statement, but in our heads, we were responsive to the state of Ohio. We are the state university and that Ohio imprints or Ohio authors are always important to us. Uh, COIL's Ohio authors is uh, one of our guidelines for collecting. So Sarah Piet again, fits that. Uh, One of the other Missions of, a, of a rare books and manuscripts is to, and you know, of any good special collection of libraries generally, is to try to fulfill the needs of resources for our faculty. So there, so Sarah Piat sort of use the common phrase now, seem to check all the boxes as to why we should pursue, it. and then we have the connection with the Piat castles and then Larry Michaels shows up, and it I've just admired so much how the collection has developed because we now have books donated by Larry Michaels. Uh, we have the Paula Bennett papers, all this research. So it's really becoming as you meant or will refer to a center. And I think it'll also become beyond Serapia and I think it'll have, uh, have other cultural implications. The, uh, I'm currently reading Abe, which is the new biography of Abraham Lincoln by David Reynolds and it's really magnificent. He refers to it as a Cultural biography. I hadn't really heard that phrase before. I thought most biographies were sort of cultural, but I, I guess as opposed to literary or the more factual type biography. And in doing so, he's he's really pointing out the culture of Lincoln's upbringing. That you know, while he didn't have these many books to read, or it, it wasn't that. In fact, there was quite a bit going on, and newspapers were abounding. And we talk about when he the. Types of books he was reading. And, and I know you know all this, but maybe your audience won't, like primers and elocution books, which again with Jerry Tarver collection fits, would contain wonderful selections of literature. So within those were biblical pieces, Shakespearean pieces, current poetry of the time. And Lincoln himself was a great reader of poetry. And uh, had apparently one of those wonderful memories, which I always admire in people because I don't have it, where they can read it and then just recite line after line after line. He could do that. So in the same way, I think like the Piat could become like, it is a cultural collection. It also made me think perhaps Lincoln read Piat. I mean, that would be, you know, getting into the area of of, of, uh, reading theory. Or, you know, who read these works? And I know you're all thinking of that and doing that, but the Capitol is in Washington, D.C. Was that actually, was that during the Civil War?
1: Could you talk a little bit about the Capitol, Jeff? I mean, um, that gets started um, in the early 70s.
0: Okay, so. By
1: by Don Piot, who is uh, Sarah's husband's first cousin.
0: Okay. Don's called
1: two N's, D-O-N-N. I'm mentioning yeah, I, this for our, for our
0: audience who might yeah. be unfamiliar, but yeah, you got this Washington, D.C. collection uh, connection. Yeah. And that will, again, this, as we talk about Sarah, really, so, so for me, it really wasn't a difficult decision. Hmm. Uh, and because we also want to work with other organizations in the city, in the state. Hmm. And so now we have the connection with the Piat people. And that was where the capital, the original capital, was discovered. The, and Ohio State played its role in expediting yes. the uh, digitization of it. Yes. So it just keep expanding. Uh, when I look at the Paula Bennett papers, it's it's research paper, but it, it, as with any major research project, she probably raises more questions to be answered. So uh, you know, a graduate student coming into that collection will just say, well, she, she could have done more of this, and here are the materials right here to do it. I have to ask you, I remember that Paula Bennett also had an outstanding collection of Xerox materials of all American poetry. Is that, did, is that still there or did, she, did that ever come to Ohio State?
1: Well, um, you know, I'm still in very close touch with Paula. Of course, she's thrilled by um, what has become of her papers at Ohio State and is a big mm-hmm. supporter of our collections. The last time I visited her, she was um, cleaning out closets and giving me boxes of stuff to bring back. So she has added multiple binders of PIOT related stuff to what she originally donated. She also gave us an amazing collection of early lesbian zines Mm -hmm. from Cambridge in the 1970s. And that that of course has gone into our LGBTQ uh, zines collection. Uh, she is not ready yet to uh, hand over all her other uh, photocopies of yeah. women poets, but uh, we'll, they will come to us someday. Um, but you're right. Yes, well, that's, that's the other va- very valuable research of Paul's that you and I have been talking about for a long time. And she is very glad, as with the zines, to know that it's going to have a good home.
0: Yeah, we have talked about it. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that uh, because, again, it, it adds to this cultural collection. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, another analogous situation we have the Hilandar research collection here at Ohio State which are microfilms mm-hmm. of medieval slavic manuscripts from Mount Athos mm-hmm. in Greece and because well microfilm collection yeah except they're the only copies in the western hemisphere yes
1: yeah yeah and,
0: and in fact mount athos had a major fire where things were damaged so in fact they may be the only text, not original materials but the only text available yeah and what Paula did as i remember it is go through reams and reams of newspapers. And we don't even know if those are still existent. So they are copies, but they are the text. So it it, it just may, it'll make that collection. So if the collection will become bigger than PI in in its own way, she'll always be the core of it. You know, you always have the core focus as we do with our other collections, but it's a wonderful situation. So we get back to the original question. It it was very easy to take that tack with that. Everything fit and that, I suppose I, I look at that as like really a model for collection development. And it just happened, I happened to be there. I'd like to say that hopefully anyone who was in the seat at that time would have done the same thing.
1: One thing I remember us doing though, um, I don't think I have an exact record of the date As I remember uh, you drove the two of us out to Piat yeah. Castles one yeah. day, we met with Margaret Piatt. I'll mention for our audience that at that time there were two castles out in West Liberty, Ohio known as the Piat Castles. And they were famous not because of Sarah Piat, but um, they were owned by brothers Don and Abram Piat and very unusual because just sitting in the middle of of Ohio, there were these two stone castles uh, that the brothers had built. And basically it was a tourist destination, Mm -hmm. but, but very steeped in Ohio history and it's recorded in your AAA guide and stuff like that. And Jeff and I very early on connected with Margaret Piat. She'll also be doing an interview in this series. And so I think Jeff... Um, that was one of the first things we did after we started talking with Paula Bennett about her papers.
0: It was early. And I, yeah, I can't remember. It was it early. Right. Yeah. I was, and speaking of that, I was surprised that the castle, which is the more famous one, uh, uh, Don Piat's family, his brother, I think, that they had sixty thousand visitors a year, which really surprised me. I mean, I think that speaks just to the the significance of the Piat name in the state of Ohio. Uh-huh. Uh, it, and again, it, well then the other thing is that the final thing is that Sarah Piat is really worthy of this. Yes. I and mean, I'm not I, I'm not a scholar to speak to that part of it, but I certainly have read some of her poetry and I was very impressed. I I don't I can't remember the exact poem uh, but and I'm only gonna paraphrase it because I don't have that gift like Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it dealt with you know some talk like the plantation school where old timers would say like why can't we go back to that time you know mm-hmm. it's uh, gone of the wind type thing yeah and there was a poem and she said something it, it just moved me it said, so that you know because of the war so that everyone could rise up and die again and i thought yeah let everybody die twice what a wonderful thought that is mm-hmm. and i just that was to me it gives, it gives me goosebumps now i don't know if I'm phrasing it clearly enough that you can remember what poem it is. Yeah, but I think
1: you're, I think you're talking about the poem um, called another war. So yeah. what I'm going to do is here on the, in the background of our talk, I'm just going to pull out the poem and read you a couple of lines and see if um, based on that basis, if this seems to be the one you're talking about. Um, this is one where, as in many of uh, that's the premise is that there's a person speaking in the poem who turns out to be a mother and she's having a conversation with her child and um, they're watching soldiers marching and the kid is so impressed with the uniforms and so on that he says can we have another war because he's attracted to the romance and she Mm -hmm. says another war Um, is that the one you're thinking of Jeff?
0: A.B. I, 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 the impression I had was the idea that the dead would be would become alive again. Yes. and would die again, would die again, Yes. And or maybe a certain memories of it. But it goes back to what I wait, Larry was talking about uh, in the in your interview with him, about the voice seeming, you know, seemingly the domestic voice or whatever, but it's just so dark and telling. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and really dealing with major issues. Yeah. And that's the that's the struggle, as you know, with most nineteenth-century American women poets is that they're constrained and have to have to make their
1: mm-hmm.
0: points through innuendo and uh, irony and that sort of thing. So,
1: well, I thought maybe since you know one of the one of the really fun things about these interviews is that our listeners who aren't familiar with Piat's poems, when when um, when during these conversations people bring up favorite poems. It's really fun to pull them out and read a few lines and give yeah. people a sense of what the, so i pulled out another one jeff too that i think maybe <laughs> also and and this is nice because it's taking us into all these one of uh piat's topics one of her many compelling topics and this one being the war and the aftermath um one of my claims about piat is that she's also a great poet of reconstruction And Mm -hmm. this reconstruction has been basically ignored in American literary history until very recently. Um, This is one aspect of her career that that needs to be um, read much more carefully. But there's another one, Jeff, called There Was a Rose. And the speaker of the poem is listening to someone who is romanticizing the war. Uh, The poem was published in 1873 in the Capitol Mm -hmm. and and the speaker is listening to someone romanticize and reminisce about the war and she says she wants to go back and um she says she wants to go back to the world that it was then and a million marching men from the north and south would arise and the dead would have to die again
0: that's the that's it that's That's the the line line. yeah isn't it that's chilling
1: isn't it yeah exactly i I mean i actually got goosebumps just now talking about yeah Yeah.
0: You, you look at Gettysburg or Appomattox, sorry, not Appomattox, but uh, oh, the other major one on Antietam. And think of the, you know, the rivers ran with blood. Yeah, let's do that again. Isn't that, isn't that a nice thought? I mean, it's boy, it's a piercing picture.
1: And, yeah,
0: uh, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, so that's, so so I was reading. So that was the final. I mean, that just fit in with everything else. Well, she's also a darn good poet. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and of course, and you, you addressed this with the other uh, interviewees that there seems to be a period of rediscovery. Well, well, you know the famous Melville story with uh, Raymond Weaver, I think, nineteen twenty. Suddenly from Princeton, they said, suddenly, hey, this guy's one of our great writers. So he had, he had languished for years. And Emily Dickinson, and we don't know how many others, but it's scholars like yourself and Larry and Paula that are bringing this to, to the attention of uh, the literary community. <laughs>
1: Now, um, maybe to return to another topic you raised already, because I think one of the things those of, work, those of us working on, Sarah, are, are aware of is what is the current status in our society of reading poetry just for enjoyment. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when, when poetry is, has developed a reputation for being kind of uh, abstracted and academic, um, you know, how do you get people to read a recently discovered poet. You mentioned the, um, the Charvat collection and the um, component of it that included women poets. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk at all about that collection and whether it got used and where it came from? Are these things that, um, that you um, can talk about for a few minutes?
0: Yeah, it, it probably hasn't been used as much as it should be, because I don't think that 19th century American women poets have had the attention that they should have. And I think that will change. And it was just there before I came. and I unfortunately can't remember the name of the donor.
1: Is it Tuttle by any chance? The Tuttle collection?
0: This, is, is that it, familiar? It does sound. Was that was that okay. at Ohio? Was well, there
1: there is something called the Tuttle collection, which, um, if I recall correctly, we got in the 1950s or something like that, and it's
0: that's probably it then, okay. Uh, and the provenance notes weren't part of the record in those days, so a lot of that disappears, and we can talk about that later, yeah. Uh, but so within that, whatever reason it was, and find out who Tuttle is, Mm -hmm. uh, you had you know. The Carey sisters, you had uh, Lucy Larkum, Elizabeth yep. Stoddard—they were all there. Yeah, yeah. So many of them, and so that and it was in our general collections.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so one of the initi- initiatives we took after we started with the Piat was to transfer those mm-hmm. to Rare Books or the William Sharbat American Literature Collection. So suddenly it wasn't just Piat, We had this wonderfully well-designed collection. Someone who knew what he was doing, or she—I don't even know if total is a man or a woman. And it was, it was, wasn't comprehensive, but it was extensive. So we, ha- again, had that core that really makes us not, you know, for American poetry, but just American 19th century studies. Mm-hmm. And we were just, it was nice that we were able to, that the books didn't disappear. And again, as I'll say, I don't think it's getting the attention it should, but it will get more when perhaps people start you know, thinking of Piat and what her relation is to these other writers and who are these other writers and, mm-hmm. you know, and just viewing them. As you mentioned, Reconstruction, which, uh, considering what has happened in our capital of late, mm-hmm. speaks w- well
1: yes. to you
0: know, a very difficult time. I mean, Oh gosh,
1: think about uh, that home, Jeff. I mean, yeah. about the war, right?
0: Right. It's, by the way, you do know that the Republican Party, Lincoln's party, is now the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is now the Republican Party. The old Dixie, it's sort of what a strange, you can't use names for parties anymore without having some sort of historical experience.
1: Yes, right. So. Now, now another thing, you know, that would be really helpful to our listeners. Um, I found when, when I have conversations with people about recovering Piat, um, people often when they ask me, you know, what am I doing in my work? And I explain I'm writing a biography of a recently rediscovered poet. They always have a mm-hmm. lot of questions about that. What does that mean? Recently rediscovered. Why would she be rediscovered? And then when I say her name, they say, "I'm sorry, I never heard of her." And I say, "There's no reason to be sorry. She fell out of our culture for a long time." Yeah. But you know, there's this tremendous energy um, for recovering women writers, and people are interested in that more generally. They like—I find—they like to hear stories about um, the de- what I call the detective elements of my research. Like, they don't really they don't really connect with the fact that you can't just Google a topic and find the information that you need. So I try to give them practical examples of what it means to actually have to do the ground um, level work to recover someone who fell out of history. Yeah. And they like those stories. Um, I, I, One thing, though, that I think also that a lot of our listeners don't have practical familiarity with is how does the concept of a special collections or a rare books and manuscripts these different kinds of terms right special collections rare books and manuscripts what are those and how what role do they play in a, a project like this like okay who is Sarah Piatt, and let's bring her back if you can just get into some examples like the guts of that job as you did it I think mm-hmm. that would be really clarifying for people
0: okay yeah, well yeah. <sighs> Special collections is the broader term. And when we use rare books, it's literally what it says. Books, they have more artifactual value or as much more artifactual value as uh, sort of tomes of knowledge uh, in that some of them are hardly ever touched at all. Uh, special collections goes beyond that in that you might have 20th century material, 21st century. I keep forgetting, are 20% of the way into the next century that feels, for instance, Stephen King. Why do you have Stephen King? Well, because we have a core collection of American fiction, but that, you know, we're building for the future. So special collections, and, and they're not rare because he publishes hundreds 100,000 copies, but it's part of the comprehensive collecting of it that makes it a special collection. And then within that, you have your your Hawthorne's, your Piatt's, uh, your Raymond Carver's manuscripts and other manuscripts, the Burroughs. Uh, and that is what really, Provides, I think, more of the research value because you can look at. I know, and I'm a, I, I, do a lot, I do textual scholarship, and it, it is important to have the original editions for clarity, for making sure that you can provide people with all possible choices of, of readings that they might have from a single text, like the Scarlet Letter. Uh, but for the most part, for most scholars, they can read a Norton critical edition. That's fine. You don't really need the book. Special Collections provides that extra stuff. Uh, when we talk about people doing research for dissertations and books and such, and it, I, don't, I, I couldn't even give a percentage, but there's so much of the archival world which is just unexplored at this point. And, it's, and, it, and as far as well, it's all available digitally. No, it's not, because the costs of doing it are outrageous. Uh, priorities are made within each library. And unless you have an advocate, a supporter for doing that, it's not going to happen. And then whoever <clears throat> was in the seat at the, or you know, in charge of the collection at one time, retires or dies, moves on and they lose that advocate and the papers just disappear. I mean, one thing that can occur in which, you know, when you're developing collection is and a phrase I always dislike was curators say, my collection, no, it's not your collection. You're doing it for your current faculty, your current students, and, and what you, as best you can, perceive as interest to future scholars. And there's a tendency of some people just to build collections on what they like. And I don't think that's good because when they're gone, who cares? You know, they're like, I built this wonderful collection of, I don't some great, just someone who's not really significant, but this person really liked it. And wasted, well, I won't say way, I think, invested poorly their resources that they should have been thinking of the larger academic community at that time. So that's sort of, you know, what we do. Uh, it's fun, you have, <laughs> you're able to spend lots of money and uh, Ohio State was always very generous to us and uh, so we got some magnificent collections and so that's the fun part. Now in my case, you know, American fiction is my area but I wasn't building to collect for myself. It was just fortunate that there was a melding of my, my interests and the collections. Now, part, of, part of the reason I was hired was because I had that specialty.
1: Okay, so let's, let's try to pull in to some examples for our listeners about um, what this meant with um, Sarah Piat when you got your eye on her as an important figure. Mm-hmm. So what, what are some of the things that as, a, as a, um, the head of the Rare Books and Manuscripts Library at that time, you would say, okay, mm-hmm. this is an important um, uh, author, for us to have our eyes on. Okay, so what happens next? What do you do if you're in the world of special collections?
0: Well, you you identify the corpus and create a find. Well, you create your original record, but you also create a uh, desiderata list. The, and, and this is where Larry and yourself and everyone came was so important. Influential say, well, this, these are the works, and, and you know, I could find it myself too. But you were giving me other additional things and related items uh, that we then can go out to our rare book dealers and say, we're looking for this sort of stuff. And they come up with surprising things. And you know, inspe- you know, people do collect just Americana, which doesn't seem important to some people, but uh, they seem minor, but it's, none of that's ever minor because it's, it's right of the moment. And it may have uh, points of view uh, or ideas, theories and such, which are, can be repugnant, uh, but still it's part of the history, it's part of the literary history. And so we then can then, you know, have our dealers looking for that a little. I'm not sure if I'm exaggerating this, but when we, we had major monies at one time, when I first came here, for, uh, federal funds to buy lots and lots of American fiction. So it was like $200,000. And this was uh, in 1983, which is a lot of money. And they were selling for, we went down to acres of books in Cincinnati, which is now no longer there and just. It was early. We we're doing American fiction, 1901, 1925. And we we're just pulling out books for a dollar, two dollars. So we were buying a lot. Wow. But what, what I'm leading to is, though, if you spread that list to everyone, you can actually artificially inflate the market. So it's uh, generally preferable to find your trusted dealers and spe- even those who specialize in that area and limit the, the, the number that you work with so mm-hmm. that because in some cases they'll be looking to buy from other dealers. And so every time there's an exchange there, they're marking it up for you. So hmm. it's uh, that's I, I, I may be exaggerating that, but I think it can happen. Hmm. And uh, so that's, we did that as well with American Fiction and with uh, uh, PI. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Now, one thing you and I talked about numerous times over the years, um, it was you, I remember checking in with you about this and you saying to me that you found it very puzzling that the dealers were not turning up books by Serapia.
0: Yeah.
1: As someone who published, you know, 18 books, and you said you were surprised that there weren't yeah. more hits. Do you, do you have any reflections on, on that? I mean, let's make sure our, our, our listeners understand that for an author like this that pretty much nobody has heard of, mm-hmm. nobody really has any reason to collect this person. I mean, unless you're just yes. collecting general items, right? Um, nobody was really looking for books by Sarah Pia and so it's not until she becomes a better known author that the prices will go up
0: yes and that people
1: will start cataloging by her name right and
0: especially when you come out with uh, bibliographies and anthologies and you now have checklists to work with Mm -hmm. Uh, and people a lot of collectors work with checklists your your outstanding collectors tend Want to be completists? They want everything of that person, mm-hmm. and that just wasn't the case in that, that at that time. And I think we go back to the general issue that nineteenth-century uh, American women's poetry was not prominent, mm-hmm. and the dealers really want to sell books. It's a business, and so they and they might very well have had a lot of that in their stock, but that hadn't been recorded. The, the old, right? uh, traditional sort of uh, book barn that I've seen been to many, you know literally barns just full of books they don't know what's there uh then suddenly well wait a minute we have some old century. Yeah. let go through there so they start they will start to emerge right uh, I mean, uh, you you never know where things are going to be we just talked about clintonville and this is related to collecting not to Piat. but i got a phone call one day from a woman on lakeview right on the other on the uh, west side and and I don't think there's a Lake to View, but it's called Lake View. And uh, <clears throat> she said she had some old religious works. And, all, and that's one of the well, more common. We have an old Bible it's from 1900. It's like, well, that's not really an old Bible. Well, then she started giving me some dates, like 1521. And it turned out that the collection she talking about belonged to a woman who had been the son of a Lutheran minister who had been at Capitol and, uh, these books have been passed down. They've been, I guess, the first son becoming ministers somewhere in the 19th century. It came over the United States and the collection at this point was in Arizona. I I went out personally to get it. You went out to Arizona? Went out there and it was in a mobile home park in a a desert. Oh
1: my god. And they
0: had it appraised out about $40,000 worth of Reformation materials, which again we have a fantastic Reformation collection. So this is just to point out that you don't know where anything is. You, you start going through the mobile wow. homes in the Arizona desert. You don't know what you. Know. She
1: had a 16th century Bible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she had Luther works. Oh
1: my and god.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was. Uh,
1: oh, holy cow!
0: And and you're you're that's not your area, but you know that we have that great Luther collection.
1: Yes, absolutely. A Reformation. Oh wow. Oh, yeah. A mobile home in Arizona.
0: Uh, yeah, it was funny. Uh, wow. Well, I, bore your audience with this but the only thing she said was that she didn't want any acknowledgement wow that you want, want to be anonymous i thought because people give you uh paperbacks and they want their name to be etched oh. into the walls. yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah she, and she said so well we'd like to but she said no uh-huh. Please don't.
1: Interesting, wow.
0: I could imagine she was the last of the, she had been adopted and she was the last of the line. No other, so this, if she hadn't given them to us, I don't know what would have happened to So
1: them. what was the connection with Lakeview if she was in Arizona? Oh, no,
0: she, this is a uh, friend of hers.
1: Oh, I see, okay, and yeah. He said,
0: well, let, I'll call Ohio State and see if there's any interest. So again, word of mouth. Can, wow,
1: and, yeah. But taking us back to Piot, of course, what yeah. this means, an author that pretty much no one has heard about. Mm -hmm. Um, but who published widely in newspapers, magazines, and Mm -hmm. book form, there was probably a lot of stuff out there, and people just don't understand that what they have has acquired a new type of value.
0: Right, and uh, again, uh, uh, the locality that, because she was an Ohio writer, Mm -hmm. and had family and friends in Ohio, you would expect that there might be a good number of books in Mm -hmm. our own state.
1: Yes, yeah. Uh,
0: so many old homes with just these old bookcases yeah, full of books yeah, yeah
1: so uh, one one question about when you got all this started i don't think i've ever asked you this and the question probably um has returned to me recently right returned to my thinking since we had you know all those acres of books let's say where you're just collecting widely in the 19th century <laughs> do you happen to recall when you started getting interested in serapia in particular did our library already have some of her volumes on the shelves? Do you recall that? I don't remember.
0: I, I believe we did. I okay. think we had some there, but uh, and there are probably yeah. some if it is the Tuttle uh, Literary Poetry Collective. I'm, I'm sure there are some, but we, we were—they were sparse. We didn't yeah. have as many as we should have, yeah. considering what, what she's become.
1: And it did take uh, us quite a while. As you were saying at the time, the book dealers were coming up empty. It did take us quite yeah. a while to, to to fill out our collection of first editions. In mm-hmm. fact, we just found one this year that had been missing. That's um, great.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So I think there's only one more that we still need to acquire. Exactly.
0: Well, that's terrific. Yeah. And now, yeah. now of course, you have to get the multiple because she's you're concentrating on her and doing textual work. Right? You have to get multiple copies of things. Yes, exactly. And that's right, something that... Right. Uh, uh, a lot of the much of the public don't understand. You know, why do you have to have multiple copies to, to come up with the pure text? Well, that doesn't yeah. mean much. Uh, the, and the administrators don't always see it that way either. You know, they would. I won't get into that. The I was going to remark upon the the direction that the Piat collection took. Yeah, Love I to have hear been it. well. When I came to Ohio State, we were compiling a database of American fiction, and that. Caused me to get connected with Henry Louis Gates Jr., who was at Duke University at the time, and he was doing the Black Periodical Literature Project. So I was became part of their advisory board, hmm. and what he was doing was the same thing. Was because so much of the African American literature was in periodical form. There was no, there very few, they, they weren't there were some books, but they weren't they didn't have the same access as white authors did. So what they had done, and, and that turned into one of the great literary projects is to go out and, as Paula did, and get copies of all the old, as many black periodicals they could find. And there were a lot of them. They weren't publishing books, but they were publishing a lot of periods. So that provided sort of a a good late 20th century model of using technology and such to gather these materials and make them known. And I I would say, probably consciously, we imitated that.
1: Well, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting point, and I think it comes back to helping our audience to understand the importance of, of special collections. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that when I teach undergraduates and graduate students, they, they really, and it's no fault of their own, it's, it, it just makes sense. I mean, they have a difficult time understanding what these resources are for, which is why the practical experience is so important. So given what you've just been saying about the Henry Louis Gates projects, I mean one thing that I can say about the PIAT materials we've collected, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this too, is that the current uses of a lot of those materials I think have shifted from when you and I first started working on this. So Mm -hmm. one, one example I'll use is you remember that we started with Paula Bennett's research papers and since then we've added a lot of other pieces to the collection but one of the things that um, Paula had done as a function of the time period in which she was doing her research is she had made photocopies of all of Sarah's published books because people did, people who wanted to work on that material couldn't reliably get it. It had to be on your library shelf. You had to lug mm-hmm. it out. Yeah. And, and then Google Books hit as a project. Now, now I remember when we were doing Google Books at Ohio State. Can you can you talk a little bit about that moment, what that meant for libraries?
0: Well, it's a tremendous moment. It's, uh, it particularly was uh, significant for the rare books because they, it turns out that Ohio State had a number of unique copies or rare copies. Uh, our concern was uh, the treatment of the books. We didn't want to I mean it's great to have the copies made, but you don't want to destroy the original and doing the copy so they actually took us had us up there in uh then ann Arbor outlet <laughs> and it was very this is a humorous but it's very secretive that you weren't supposed to know it was there it was this unmarked building and then so we got in the building they were the big multicolored google neons uh logo and they had you know and it was just bustling and they had you could I had firsthand experience of seeing how they have all these food supply, they had cereals and good food for their employees and this and that. And then they went down they showed us how they were doing it and they flipped, they're just flipping, flipping, flipping. Uh, and, it, it, and they proved to us that they were being very careful with it, but we had to, we, we tried to uh, institute as much quality control as we could. I mean, while the books were sort of graded before they left and then graded when they came back to see if there was any, any damage done. So if nothing else, we would get some compensation. Uh, but that, yeah, that was a wonderful project. And some people resented it or re- resisted it because they thought, well, now people won't use our books. And, well, That's, you, you, want to, you want them to be used. I mean, if it's remotely, there's always a reason for someone who's going to have to look at the books originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can give you an example of a, a, a case where someone was studying about well, correspondence from the Caribbean during the Yellow Fever period.
1: Oh, wow, and, great. And like,
0: you know, in official materials and that, and then which were heavily edited sense nuts, you know, were, but he could, he, he learned that there would be the smell of certain uh, treatments of medicines and such that would, because they were all in that area and they had to be like today's pandemic, they, they were treating them. I forget what, you know, but it was like not quinine, but so that a distinctive smell so he had to see the letters and smell them. Oh he, my gosh! If he, could, if he could get that medicinal smell, he knew that they were, you know, treated in some way and were probably very censored. And oh. and that's a minor example, but it, sometimes there's there's always odd reasons to have to see the original work. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes I think libraries treat themselves too much as a business, and that it's not all to just you know keeps things hidden. In fact. The modern rare book and special collections has a uh, theory of, of, of usage has really gone, it, and this has been going on for 50 years now, I'd say, but demystification. It used to be that you know only certain people could see these materials and that you couldn't touch them and all of these restrictions, whereas that's changed a lot. And I, Google's just another extension of that. I don't think it's a surprising thing when, you, when we would apply for grants that the major granting agency was preservation access, which really is all there is to libraries, preserving. In other words, having the materials and providing access, so that, that's what you do.
1: Mm. Okay, so we went down a couple of different avenues here, but let's go back to where this part of the conversation started, which was, mm-hmm. you make a commitment to start collecting these materials. And then um, one of the questions I asked was, what are the steps? And you said, well, the first thing you do is you make a list of all the publications and, and try to acquire them. Um, in a case like ours, where we were dealing with someone's papers, um, and someone's papers about somebody else. what What are the practicalities of getting that stuff? It's not like you say to a dealer, "Go get me Paula Bennett's papers." So how can you tell us how this works practically?
0: Well now we're we're in the uh, under, seeking the good graces of our faculty who have the connections and the networks of who has what and who's doing what. because as you know that there could be, years of research. The book's not out yet, but there's still years of research there. And research collections I think are important. Uh, that you first of all they're collected in an intellectually uh, determined way. You know, there's a there's a path, there's a coherence to them. Uh, and it, it it's I'm not expressing this well, but it's just explaining things that other people may not explain as well. And there, it's not your standard book that has gone under the pen of editors uh, or publishers who say, well, that's too much, gotta to take it out. There's a lot of unpublished stuff that comes out of these research collections. There's yes. many, many reasons yeah. why you have them. And, well, you know, we have the uh, author edition papers, which is, I think, is right for someone to do something wonderful with them. That's a As great idea. Of, yeah. yeah.
1: It's the behind the scenes stuff that doesn't get in print. And right. it's also, again, going back to what I'm saying earlier about the misunderstandings people have about, you just have to do a Google search and you turn everything up. And this is stuff that there is no trace of on the web anywhere. Mm-hmm, right. And there's only one copy of it, right? There's mm-hmm. only one copy. Unless you go to Ohio State to see the behind the scenes editorial stuff on the Hawthorne edition, there is nowhere else in the world where you're gonna find that.
0: Yeah, and, I'll, and to mention for the Google project, I, I, at least I don't remember and I don't think we did send any papers. It was all book material. Yeah, yeah. The book project for a couple of reasons. First of all, the paper materials are ephemera and much more vulnerable and much harder to control. Can you imagine sending up a bunch of, we'll say if we had Hawthorne letters, someone might take How you'd send up 500 letters and you didn't have to count them when they come back and there's one missing, where is it? Did it fly out the truck?
1: Uh
0: Yeah, so so those materials do remain unique.
1: Uh Yes, so a good example, I think, for our listeners of what we're talking about is, Current users, unlike, you know, back in uh, the early 2000s, current users don't need quite as much to use Paula's photocopies of all the books, because mm-hmm. you can find most of them on Google Books now. But there are other kinds of papers in there, again, that exist nowhere else in the world. There was nowhere else. They are they are unique copies. We have them here at Ohio State, and and that's it. That's the only one. So um, You know, Paula did things like she did much more extensive photocopying of of Piat poems, as you're saying, from all kinds of newspapers and magazines that are collected nowhere else. And her published edition of Piat is a selected edition. So it's only a handful of those poems.
0: The other thing is that the Google Project is a book. And there are many copies of that book some of which will have annotations and markings that the copy you see don't have. And getting back to reader theory, if in fact you had a uh, book owned by Mark Twain, a a Piat book owned by Mark Twain with jottings in it, or even just check marks and all, finding out what he found interested in that. Now that's a different example. But we do, I can give a real example. We have a copy of The Great Gatsby, which uh, was a copy owned by William S. Burroughs which has all these little marks and stuff. Oh, that's Another, fantastic, wow. If, if, if students are looking for projects, have them look at that and say, "Yeah, Burroughs and Fitzgerald deal, wow. what, was, what was Burroughs taking from this? Yeah. And, and, I, and again, that's an example of, with all of the Piat materials, I'm sure that among all the photogra- uh, uh, photocopied materials that Paula has, there, there had to have been some that had markings in She must've made some provenance notes. Those yeah. are things things that, that won't show up elsewhere.
1: Yes. Yeah. Good point. You don't, and you don't know whose copies um, she was photocopying, who, yeah. you know, to whom it belonged, like you said, might be a signature in there. And um, um, another you, you,
0: you would suspect, I just thought that being in Washington with the Capitol such that Don would have distributed copies of her poems to dignitaries that he knew. I mean that. Yeah. So you might have had uh, Yeah. James Garfield. Or, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, my, uh,
0: Ulysses Grant.
1: my colleague in uh, PIOT research, uh, Sean Andrus, will be doing uh, an interview with us again, doing an interview with us in this series. Um, uh, Sean is a, a non-academic uh, researcher who also has made some very major discoveries in PIOT research. And one of his special areas in the PIOT recovery, which is extremely valuable, is he's again, because Piat has not been collected by other repositories concertedly until Ohio State entered the scene. Um, what he's been doing is going after likely correspondence of the piots and looking in their papers, Yeah, which is a great way to come at it because they, they as you know, they corresponded with so many cultural figures of the age. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately my, my trip that was planned for last summer in Washington D.C. to get on some of this stuff was canceled, but the connections that they had with figures in the Lincoln administration—there mm-hmm. is no question there's going to be stuff there in those people's papers. I mean, right. Salmon Chase gave J.J. his job at the Treasury, uh, you know. And um, I've just real recently realized, after seeing the name in a number of places, that I'm going to ask you to check the index of the biography you're reading that one of Lincoln's secretaries was a close friend of Jay Day's, fellow poet.
0: I'm gonna make a note of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll hit you up on private okay. email about that to check the index. I just read a different biography of Lincoln and I was checking the index, but I'm gonna ask you to check yours. Um,
0: yeah, that's, again, this is a, that's what scholars do. Yeah, I, I always go to look for names, see who, yeah. has, who has most names and then oftentimes- It's another,
1: it's another good example for our listeners, right? About. Yeah why you, why you, everything is not just summarized already for you in a book.
0: Um, well, an adjunct to, the, to what we're talking about is, is the history of scholarship itself, which is a vibrant field. And this is uh, the study of Piat scholarship, which yeah, I think, I, I love reading books about scholars. Yeah. You mentioned when you talk to Larry's Scholar Adventures, well, that's, yeah. you know, again, homage to uh, Richard Aldick, that yes. great, that great yes. book, which I just, I reread that frequently.
1: I remember because, you yeah. being such a fan of Baltic, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I thought I'd give maybe give our listeners an example of another, another concrete example of how the meaning of the Bennett collection that, that you worked on acquiring for us, how, it, how now another component of it has become exceptionally important 20 years later maybe that would be interesting. And you and I could talk about that because you collected this stuff. And I don't think you and I have had a a chance to catch up about what's happening with it now. So just as I said, like the the photocopies of books are still important, but they're not as urgent as they were Mm -hmm. um, prior to Google Books. Um, One, now that we've digitized several of the newspapers that Sarah's poems appeared in regularly, the Capitol in Washington DC and the New York ledger in New York, um, we've started to turn more concertedly to the Louisville Daily Journal, where she was publishing before she was Sarah Piatt, when she was the unknown um, young woman um, living in her native Kentucky, and the Louisville Daily Journal was the most important newspaper of the West, and she's getting published there at the age of 18. Now, this is an incredibly rare newspaper. Okay, I've spent tons of time hunting for this newspaper in print copies or digitized copies, and you just cannot find it. So um, I have a lot more work to do uh, about that, but the part I wanna connect with our viewers about, with our listeners about is that the only repository in the world that has a relatively extensive microfilm copy of the Louisville Daily Journal is in Louisville, the free public library. No one has a print run that we know of unless it's in somebody's attic. There is no mm-hmm. extensive print run of this newspaper in the world. And the only place that has extensive microfilm is this one library. And they don't lend the microfilm. So again, this is the kind well, of- thing like, Well, yeah, go on. You have some- Well, you have well some,
0: I mean, a microfilm is a, uh, uh, as, as i remember is uh, very easy to digitize so but that's again a project that a public library they want to buy uh cds and films and popular literature for their uh constituency their their patrons and the idea well let's spend a few million dollars doing these micro when in fact well we've got the microfilm i do want to note don't you thank the person who made the microfilm? And that's uh...
1: well. Well, here, this is what I wanted. I wanted to run this by you with your expertise mm-hmm. and see your thoughts. Okay, so I've been in touch with them to borrow the microfilm, which is not allowed right now. They have no plans to digitize it, probably for the reasons you're saying. It's not yeah. an. It's right. It's not a top agenda item for them as a free public library. But um, what this means is that short of actually going to Louisville and using their microfilm, anybody who wants to work on this earliest important stage of Piat's career can go to our special collections because Paula Bennett made copies of the microfilm palms.
0: Oh, see, that that's a perfect example. And uh, right. again, I'll refer to the Black Periodical Fiction Project that... The, there's a lot more out there than people realize. And that, uh, yeah, it's, again, it's the text. It's not the original.
1: Yeah, and this is a good example of what you said, why someone's papers, I mean, Poland never published those, Mm -hmm. right? No, but the the way you get them is you go to our special collections library at Ohio State and you can look at those, or you have to drive to Louisville to use the microphone. And, you know, boy, again, off camera, Jeff, if you can ever figure out how I could <laughs> how I can move forward with this digitization project, that's my prediction yeah. right now. Um, and, and they don't have any record of the provenance. They don't know where they got the microfilm. So I can't go to the source even.
0: Yeah, and that, that again, that's one of the sad histories that provenance wasn't kept This provenance notes not as closely as they are today. Part of our standard record is to put in a provenance note, uh, I say our record. Ohio
1: State's right. That's only
0: relatively recent.
1: Yes, someone had the newspaper for them to make Mm -hmm. the microfilm, right? Right. And by now maybe that's vanished. Maybe it was an old newspaper and they got rid of it. I don't know. Any thoughts, any guesses about that situation?
0: I would, I mean, uh, Nicholas Baker came out.
1: uh, Oh, I remember. Yeah.
0: Double fold and really uh, chastised the library community for getting rid of materials. And he, in, in some ways uh, he was correct that you, you wanna commend people for making the microfilm but then curse them for throwing the materials away afterwards thinking that you don't need them. Uh, I, I, I would just guess that the storage of it alone when you calculate costs in library maintenance is there's, there's a, always a formula for how much it costs for every cubic foot of space. And so you're gonna keep and how many people really are Going to look at these old newspapers. And even under the best of conditions, they probably, if someone looks at it once, they're going to do serious damage to it. Uh, so it becomes a cost factor. And, and Nicholas Barker, is it Barker or Baker? There's Nicholson, this PC, there's a rare one of the distinguished rare book people in England. Is uh, They have basically the same name, but one's Barker, one's Baker. I think it's Baker. But he tried to do that. He, he did buy a, a storage facility, but it just became overwhelming for him and, uh, and expensive, very expensive. Mm-hmm. It's, well, uh,
1: it's, it, it's helpful it's, to remind people about that. Um, one thing that makes me wonder, and this is pure speculation, I wanna make sure our, our audience doesn't think this is fact by any means, but um, it makes me wonder if maybe they originally held the print newspaper and made microfilm in the interest of storage and then disposed of the paper.
0: That might have been that they made their own, absolutely.
1: Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a good example. I mean, of what you were saying earlier, why one of the one one example of why someone's personal research papers, mm-hmm. but could hold something that is really a rare gem, um, and and it's it's essential now to our understanding of Piat's early career and. Um, the records are sparse, and this is one of the few places you can get stuff that you desperately need to yeah. understand her earliest poems.
0: And study of, as I said, study of scholarship itself. How does how does a scholar go about her, her task?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, now, what would you what would be your thoughts, uh, Jeff, about um, at this point in time with the collections having evolved to where they are, given where we are in cultural history? Yeah, would you have any thoughts or suggestions about? things to think about in the, the Piat-related collections for the future, the present and the future?
0: Well, it would be identifying, as you mentioned, that people that they knew, and uh, what they've already mentioned, the letters and such, and beginning to expand to include the works of her associates, uh, acquaintances, uh, liter- literary connections. Uh, if you, if you i'm not sure if they exist but if there are any publishing printing records of the you know the famous tickner and fields cost books which is was in of measurable importance to a lot of scholars studying the print history of nathaniel hawthorne and, and others uh yeah it's just expanding on a cultural level
1: yeah.
0: just, the, papers comes.
1: Of, the papers of all those editors who published her in their newspapers
0: because it does Sarah Piat, this is I'm sort of like cribbing from the Lincoln book. Yeah, she lived within a culture, and the poems are enriched by understanding that culture better.
1: Yeah. Um, I love your question about would Lincoln have known about her and her work? Um, that's a great kind
0: well, of. You know, as you think about it more, Lincoln was from Kentucky, and in fact, when he went I'm just at that point in the biography when he went to Washington as the representative for his one term as the House of Representatives, went and stayed in Louisville and visited Mary Todd's uh, family. Right. So, like, it's very yep. very likely that Lincoln would have read the Louisville paper. Yeah, uh, you know, yep. yep. I think it would almost be impossible that he didn't.
1: And Mary Todd, that connection too, being from Lexington, you know, she is roughly roughly of the generation of Sarah's mother. <laughs> Who was also from the Lexington area. So
0: anti slavery.
1: Yeah, that social world is is, connected.
0: Because within that, yeah, within that culture, I have the advantage at this point, having just read this, but that there had a lot of people from Kentucky going to Illinois because they were anti slavery. Of course, you had a lot of people in Illinois who were pro slavery. So Sarah Pia was in that group. She was was not an abolitionist, but anti slavery. And so the connections she would have had of the other of that social group would be really important to see.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it is fascinating. Um, and you know, I wanna I wanna um, come back if we can for a minute to uh, questions about how libraries acquire things. All this whole mystery of uh, for, for for general readers, it's kind of mysterious how these collections come into being. Um, and I thought I would use an example from my own research, which is a, a very large collection of uh, family papers housed um, in Sterling Library at Yale University. Mm-hmm. And this collection is called the Piat Family Papers. And it's important to state that this was, this collection does not exist in any way because of Sarah Piat. They had never heard of her. She's not listed in the finding aid. It, it's you know, it, it's an incredibly useful collection for me as a Piat scholar, because, of course, my assumption is there's going to be a ton of family information in there that's relevant to her. And in fact, there are letters from her in there, including in folders called things like unknown or miscellaneous manuscripts, um, which is one of the fun things about collections, right, Jeff? You look in those, mm-hmm. those are always my favorite folders and there's yeah. all kinds of stuff in there. You never know. Uh, yeah. So, so my, so that what the collection is, is, um, it's a collection of uh, thousands of pages of family correspondence among the family members of Sarah's husband, JJ. Okay, Mm -hmm. and it begins with JJ's father, the patriarch John Bear Piat, who had many children who fanned out across the United States during Reconstruction in the Gilded Age, and it's all their correspondence. So it's a fantastic historical record, but also there's a lot of stuff in there related to Sarah and JJ and their family relationship. So it's a gold mine for Piat scholarship. So my question for you, Jeff, and I know that there's no way you can can know what the facts are in the case of this collection, but I'd love to hear your guesses or your hunches based on what I tell you. So again, 3000 pages, and when you look at the, um, the Yale University, the, the description of the collection, all it says is, um, quote, part gift of Howard S. Mott, 1954. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was visiting this collection, I, I asked the librarians to please check and see if there was any kind of provenance record with more detail and the answer was no so my question again trying to write Piat's biography is who had all these family papers because if they had these maybe there are more there's all kinds of stuff that we don't know yet about Sarah who was collecting them why are they together and how did they end up in the hands of Howard S Mott who then passed them on to Yale in 1954. So Jeff you dealt with the guts of that situation so many times in your profession could you just share with us any thoughts about how somebody like me would run down a question like that?
0: Well, uh, having the name Howard S. Mott is a, is a good start uh, because he was one of the great uh, Americana dealers in the country. I, I mentioned earlier that uh, we got Ohio State uh, got its copy of Modern Chivalry from him, which was, again, a nice piece of money that the Bill Studer gave us to do it, but, you know, it's a landmark book to have if you have an American fiction collection. And rare book dealers go to estates when people die, and they they sometimes glean things. They sometimes take the entire collection. Uh, If it's a significant family, I I suspect that Howard Mott probably was brought in to assess and prepare the collection for sale. perhaps, and he had maybe kept those papers separate. Uh, I, it, it could, he could have been a particular fan himself and gathered from several sources, but it seems to me it's more as if it came from a single estate somewhere. Okay. And, and I would, and, well, Howard Mott's son, last I knew, knock on wood, uh, is still operating and alive. And there might be records with, with them. Because hey, really,
1: that's a great idea. I'm gonna, con- him. Yeah. do you know his name?
0: Oh, it escapes mine right now, but but it still operates under his, the firm still operates under Howard Moss.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Great. And
0: and I, you know, with the pandemic and all, I don't know what's happened to some of these people, you know, the book fairs have been canceled. You've, you've had to cancel conferences and and research visits. I haven't been, I haven't been able to go to New York book fair or anything like that. Right. Uh, But I, I, it's very, for instance, we, always got many offers because we're Ohio and and going back to Serapia, we do collect Ohio materials, particularly diaries and uh, uh, journals and that sort of thing. And we would frequently get quotes from dealers in Ohio and beyond uh, with, you know, here's a diary of an Ohio soldier from the Civil War. Are you interested? Yeah, sure. And so I suspect that probably is what, in in fact, the fact that it said, I said, my, it's mine. My, that yeah. it was part gift, part. part gift. That yeah. if he had an affiliation with Yale University, he very likely might have. Well,
1: what that, do you think of the language "part gift"?
0: That you know, I have these materials. Uh, I'll let you have them for a bargain, and then I'll, you know, you give me some money, and I'll give you more than you're paying. Okay. You know, so that, and then then they could use it for tax purposes. That, that's a frequent thing that we did, because in many ways, if you actually, because when you, when a person sells that, they have to declare that as part of their business. If you can actually donate part of it, it actually can almost work out the same, and it benefits both the institution and the dealer.
1: Hmm. So, okay. But yeah, I
0: think, I think you might get some satisfaction if you.
1: That's a great idea. I will contact them. And yeah. I think the other key piece here might be that, um,
0: And and I'm going to check that, too, for you. Oh, great.
1: That that would be wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Sarah's last remaining child, Cecil, died in New Jersey in 1949. Mm -hmm. And so that would, I think, work with your theory about possibly an estate sale if he had all the family papers upon his death in 49, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. Mott is giving them to Yale in 54.
0: And he's an East Coast dealer. So and and not that it's not as though... I go to different states to do things, but you know he was so prominent. I'm okay. sure that they said, who, who's, who can do this?" And they said, I'll okay.
1: Good, thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah. Um, well, so Jeff, uh, I want to just publicly thank you for the role you played starting this collection. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's 20 years later. It is the best collection in the world um, of Sarah Piat uh, materials related to her life and career, and I remember when you started it all. So uh, I just want to thank you in public. It
0: it gives me great gratification to know that I did something. (laughs) You know, I've been retired for, uh, I'll be six years now coming up, so.
1: Wow, and thank you again for talking to us today. Um, Is there anything that you would like to add in closing about uh, Sarah Piot's past or future?
0: I, I don't think so. I think okay. you know, and, uh, Well, my, my major contribution has been the expediter of this. And yes. uh, it's been a pleasure the entire time.
1: All right. Well, Jeff, I'm going to um, stop recording and um, okay. thank you again.
0: Thank you. And we'll see you. We'll see you with Lucky.
1: Discovering Sarah, America's Lost Great Writer, is produced and recorded in Columbus, Ohio with the support of the Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio, the Ohio State University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, and the Ohio State University Knowledge Bank. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer, produced by Kayla Probion, and featuring the song, The Heresy of Paraphrase, by songwriter One Man Book.